Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment two, our thoughts on Tiger Woods' statement last Friday. Lots of reaction around the sports business world. We'll give you ours. That's coming up in our next segment. In segments three and four, Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints. He's a name you may not be familiar with, but he's one of the brightest minds in the NFL. That conversation coming up in segments three and four. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blog. Download the SBR podcast on demand. Go to sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. Joined in studio by Bobby Corser and Nathan Roach. Nathan, uh, your take quickly on uh, Tiger. Well, you know, I think myself as a PR professional, but also players as well as fans all feel the same way. It's ridiculous. It was a terrible statement. I know we're going to break it down, but everybody's on the same page going, that wasn't genuine. Bobby, you are out of commission, in the hospital, you're back. How you feeling? Uh, feeling much better. And you know what? I watched the Tiger statement, and I will tell you this right now. The first 15 seconds, I felt sorry for him. And then I really felt sorry for him when the primary camera went down and they had to switch to that other camera. Because at that point, there was no emotion, period. It was like I was now sitting there just watching with no actual exposure to Tiger's face. I went on MSNBC before the statement and talked about how Tiger needed to show some emotion, needed to apologize, make it heartfelt, make it sincere, not look overly scripted. In my opinion, and we'll talk about this next, he just missed. It looked like it was overly scripted. Uh, the first few seconds, you talked about the first 15 seconds. I, I thought as soon as I saw the blue drape, I thought Chevy Chase was going to come uh, stumbling out of there as Gerald Ford in the old Saturday Night Live skits. And you know Saturday Night Live is going to have a field day with this in a few weeks. All right, headlines coming up next, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, the Vancouver Winter Olympics. They keep chugging along. Solid TV ratings for NBC. They're up about 21%. 
from the 2006 Winter Games in Torino. Guys, uh, you know, I know last week on the show we had John Auron from the Sports Business Daily and Journal. We talked about the frustration with tape-delayed coverage, especially out here on the West Coast. But give me your overall feelings on NBC's coverage so far. Nathan. Well, I think the coverage overall has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed watching it. I think they've done a good job transitioning to different events. My frustration is exactly what you just said. I come home from work at 5 o'clock. I don't check websites all day because I don't want to ruin it for myself, and yet I have to wait till 8 p.m. and sometimes 11.30 to see the event that I want to see. The other frustration I have quickly is mobile application to watch these events live. You can get highlights, but with all of the technology that we've talked about over the last couple years, I want to be able to watch events live on my mobile device, and I can't do that yet. Bobby, your thoughts? You know, I agree completely with Nathan. The other thing that I like is, there are select programming that you can watch live on the secondary NBC channels, such as CNBC, USA, Telemundo, and, you know, down the MSNBC. line. MSNBC. Well, and, one of the frustrations we talked about with John last week is a lot of people are having a hard time finding things that aren't on NBC. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but I, I still think the fact that there are some events live. Listen, I'm not a big fan of curling. I think it's a cool sport, but I'm really enjoying the fact that I get to watch the USA matches live. I also like the fact that there are other events that I can watch throughout the day that are live on the other channels. Yes, people can't find it, but, you know, I understand NBC is the primetime slot to go to. And, yes, I agree with Nathan. Window 1130 on the West Coast to find out the results of ice dancing just does not cut it. Listen, I was in Victoria last weekend at British Columbia, and what was so cool about being there was, and I know it's in Canada, the same country, the event's being held, but there were seven channels at the same time that were airing the Olympics live. Different sports all day long. I loved it. I was switching channels, watching live sports. That, to me, is the way that it should be. That's how you're supposed to be able to watch the Olympics, especially when it's in North America. Well, NBC has had a lot of good fortune because Lindsey Vaughn, Bodie Miller, others have really delivered during these games. So when Americans deliver, usually it means good TV ratings. I'll tell you where NBC missed. That's coming up in our final segment. Our next headline, Corona Extra, announces this week. It signed a five-and-a-half-year deal to become the main sponsor of the men's tennis circuit. This marks the first big corporate deal signed under the watch of ATP World Tour Executive Chair and President Adam Helfand. So the deal is worth a reported $13 million annually. Guys, we talk on the show every week about how sponsors just don't have the cash for sports marketing deals that they used to. But this deal, a very healthy deal for men's tennis, it gives... Corona, a global presence, and, uh, you know, tennis lost Mercedes-Benz as a sponsor and now replaces them with Corona Extra. This is a big coup for tennis. Well, you know, this may sound ridiculous, but I actually think it's good for tennis. Mercedes, tennis has always had this kind of aura about being a rich, you know, man's sport, kind of like golf is. Corona is kind of your everyday sponsor. It's, it's an alcoholic beverage, and I think it's actually good for tennis. It may draw a more casual fan in. Because Mercedes has always had this kind of prestige associated with it, especially, like you just said, they need the sponsorship dollars. Tennis is one of those sports that's dying right now, so this is a big deal. After crawling into a hole for 78 days, Tiger Woods spoke last Friday. 
For an in-depth analysis of the week's PR nightmare, Sports Business Radio presents Caught in the Crosslights. Crosslights. Okay, so we all know the story of Tiger Woods and what happened in November, so I'm not going to bore you with those details. We also know that Tiger has gone into hiding until last Friday. No one heard from him in person. No one saw him. There was a lot of speculation. And then we found out just days before last Friday that Tiger was going to speak and that it was going to be almost like a state of the union. There were going to be a select number of pool reporters. There was going to be one camera and there were going to be some close family and friends and workers that were going to be allowed into the room when Tiger spoke. Now, Tiger's probably the only athlete in the world that could have pulled off the format that he used last Friday, which was basically, I'm going to come out and talk for 13 minutes. The world is going to stop as we know it. Every network is going to cover this. Everyone's going to tune in, and they're going to watch every single word of what I'm saying. And then you're going to have experts like us analyzing afterwards what happened. Well, let me start with my thoughts. First of all, I was on MSNBC before Tiger read his statement or gave his statement. And I said, you know, if you look at Michael Vick, if you look at David Letterman, if you look at Kobe Bryant, when these guys issued apologies, they did it from the heart. They weren't reading from a teleprompter. They weren't reading from note cards. And the main thing you have to ask yourself when someone's giving you an apology, at the end of the apology, do you believe them? Who wrote it? Well, not just that, but do you believe them? Forget about who wrote it. The way it's delivered, when I look at them, do I believe them? For a number of reasons, I didn't believe Tiger Woods. It came across as robotic. It came across as overly scripted. At one point, it looked like he was reading from a teleprompter. Then there was a comedy of errors. Uh, The camera, the head-on camera went out four minutes with four minutes to go in the speech. So then you have the the side angle, which was awkward at best. At the end, he gives a hug to his mom, which I understand, but then he goes down a line and gives a bunch of... The best word I can use to describe that press event is awkward, and that's a nice word. I didn't really believe what he said. Look, I think Tiger Woods can come back from all of his troubles. I think that one day he can win golf tournaments again, Sponsors are going to stick by him, and I think he can be a champion golfer. Is he ever going to have the mystique he used to have? No. Is he ever going to make 90 to $100 million a year annually in endorsements? No. Um, I think there's a lot that's been lost with what he's gone through in the last uh, you know, few months. But um, I don't know. What do you guys think, Nathan? Well, I, I think... I believe, part of me believes Tiger that, that he's remorseful. Now, why he's remorseful, I don't know. But I think the hardest thing for me, especially with that second camera angle, is is seeing his mom. Because Tiger, for all intents and purposes, was raised in a good family. And I think that this is, it just, it showed how devastating this is on his family. I think the one area that kind of bothered me a little bit, though I understand where he's coming from, is where he kind of attacked everybody for following his kids around, trying to take pictures of his kids, trying to... Because he had an agenda he, against he the people in his speech. He could have prevented all of this right. had he come out at the very beginning and just been genuine, heartfelt, and apologized for everything he did. Whenever you avoid this, 
There's going to be snoops, and they're going to try to get the dirt on every angle of your life. If you don't run, the media doesn't chase you, and we can give you a million examples of that. We talked about that on this show ad nauseum, and the fact that from people I talk to, it seems like on Friday when Tiger gave his statement, he now thinks, okay, you know, you dragged me out there, you forced me to do this, I said what I said, now I'm done. He thinks that the media circus is going to go away. And that's the most astonishing thing of all to me is that he doesn't realize just the gravity of the situation here, that he's got TMZ and Entertainment Tonight. He's got people hiding in bushes, flying helicopters overhead. This is not just a sports story. He's got every low-life media person in the world after him now. They're going to follow him, his kids, his wife. It's going to be a story that's going to – I mean, he's Lady Diana now. Well, when you when you have John Daly coming out and bashing you a little bit like John Daly did this week, you have to question where you're at in, in your approach to things. I mean, John Daly, the people's, the people's golfer, if you will, said the, exactly what we're saying. Listen, come out and admit you're wrong right from the get-go. Sure. As I've said for a long time, Tiger is surrounded by enablers. I'm sure people told him after Friday, hey, great job, Tiger. That went terrific. The whole media did. Look what everybody did. Every well, pundit. a lot of reports I read, and read Bill Simmons' column on ESPN.com, if you haven't read it, nailed it. I agree. Basically, take Bill Simmons' perspective, and you can say Brian Berger agrees with every word written in this column. But I will say this. If you look at the coverage after the speech from the guys from ESPN, the Golf Channel, NBC Sports, ABC Sports, the guys that rely on Tiger to drive ratings all thought it was exactly what he needed to do, and they had no more questions coming out of it. Yes, I understand the reason why they're doing that, because they need Tiger to drive ratings, and if Tiger's not playing, ratings aren't there. Well, This, this was a first step. He needs to do more interviews. He needs to answer more questions because, frankly, there were as many unanswered questions after his event as there were before his well, event. He has to sit down with 60 minutes. That's that's the first thing he's got to do. And I also here's the one the one area where I think he did a good job at. And what he said, and whether or not someone else wrote it for him, which I'm sure someone did, he addressed the issue of, I thought I, I was entitled to this. I thought I was above all of this. And and I thought that that was the only genuine part of the speech that in the message that he delivered that, yeah, he's not above all this. Just because he's Tiger Woods does not give him the, you know, the entitlement to go out and sleep with all these women and destroy his family values. That was the only part of the speech I agreed with. But from a PR perspective, one of the reasons you do this is because you want to get the media off your back. He didn't answer the question of when is he going to return to the course. He didn't answer the question of. What may happen with this family, even though a lot of people think that's nobody's business. He didn't answer the question of, you know, a lot of speculation on some of the other things that have gone on um, and things with his sponsors and, and so on and so forth. So in a lot of ways, like I said, at the end of this, there were as many unanswered questions as there were beforehand. So I don't think the media is going to be off his back at all. And one quick point here. You'll notice that the traditional sports media, ESPN, Fox and those guys, did not cover the secondary story to this where one of the accusers or one of his, you know, flings comes out and she holds her own press conference saying, hey, you know what, I feel that Tiger should have apologized to me. It was his fault that I'm part of this. You saw the news networks cover it because it's, again, a second part of the story, and this is where TMZ and everybody else comes in. Only a part of the story is actually being covered. 
and eventually it's all going to come out. He doesn't have to apologize to the mistress. Well, there's but, much to blame. But here's he the thing I will say. He addressed domestic violence and things like that. Tiger better be telling us the truth because he looked into the camera and he said some things. And if we find out later that any of what he said is false, no one will trust him anymore. And when you talk about tying your name and your brand to other companies' brands, if you're not believable, if you cannot be trusted, you're done as a pitch person. So we'll see where this goes. Coming up next, Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the New Orleans Saints, the Super Bowl-winning New Orleans Saints. Loomis built this team. His imprints were all over this team. He brought in Sean Payton as the head coach, brought in Drew Brees. We're going to talk to Mickey Loomis. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the Super Bowl champion New Orleans Saints. Mickey, thanks for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. Thank you, uh, uh, Brian. Pleasure to be with you guys. So congratulations on winning Super Bowl 44 in Miami. As someone who's seen the state of Louisiana, the city of New Orleans, go through so much adversity since Hurricane Katrina, what does this championship mean to the people of that region? Well, you know, that's a good question. And a lot of people have tried to, uh, uh, you know, put into words, you know, what that is. And I'm probably the least qualified person to uh, to describe it because I've only been here for 10 years. But you know we've got a we've got a, a a group of fans that have supported this team for 43 years, and uh, uh, you know this is their first championship. And, and I know you know I know that uh, it means an awful lot to them. Uh, you know the state of our city is is uh, I would call it euphoric right now. <laughs> Obviously we've had the Super Bowl and then Mardi Gras, and so it's been a celebration that has lasted for the last uh, you know 10 or 11 days. And and I know that. Uh, that uh, you know, people here are still uh, still really excited about about uh, when the Super Bowl. You know, <laughs> I've seen Mardi Gras be, been referred to as Lombardi Gras, <laughs> um, and so uh, you know, I think that tells you a little bit about what uh, what our fans are are going through. Did you ever allow yourself to kind of dream? This is what could it look like if we won the Super Bowl? How crazy would this city go? Well, you know, I've been here since 2000, and you know, my first year here, we won, we won the division, 
won the first uh, playoff game in, in the uh, history of the franchise. And so we got a taste of it then on how excited the city was. And, uh, you know, we, we've had good teams in the past that just haven't got, gotten quite over the hump. In 2006, you know, after, our, uh, our, you know, in 05, we went through Hurricane Katrina and we're, the team was displaced. We went through a 3-13 and season which is very, you know, very difficult on our organization and on our fans just because of the circumstances. And then in 06, we you know, made it to the NFC Championship game and lost to the Chicago Bears. And uh, you know, I, I think our city and, and, and our region was in a state of euphoria over that, uh, simply uh, not just because of, of the success of the team, but after coming off such a traumatic event as Hurricane Katrina and, and then uh, you know, obviously this year, uh, you know, getting all the way to the Super Bowl and then to win it was just, uh, you know, an incredible experience for all of us. You know, there was talk after Hurricane Katrina that owner Tom Benson may move the team because the region would no longer be able to financially support an NFL team. I know the Saints have since made a commitment to remain in New Orleans for years to come. But, you know, the media reports coming out of New Orleans as far as how the city is doing with the rebuilding efforts, we don't see them as much as we did right after the hurricane. Give us an update. How, in your perspective, how are the rebuilding efforts coming along there? Yeah, you know, a couple of things. First of all, I want to address the first part of uh, your question to lead into it. You know, the the speculation that the team was, was going to or wanted to move all came from the media. It never came from the club itself or the mm-hmm. owner. And so, you know, I continue to read that, and it's it's a mischaracterization of, of uh, you know, the intention was always to come back to New Orleans. The only question was, and, and this was a question for the first three or four months after the storm is, is the city going to be back? You know, are people right. going to come back to New Orleans? And you know, once that was established, uh, there was never ever any question that we were going to come back to uh, the city of New Orleans. You know, just that, that transition, whether there would be a place to play, because the Superdome didn't look like it was going to be ready for a couple years immediately after the storm. So that, that's always a mischaracterization that that uh, the team was thinking about or seriously considering. You know, permanently relocating somewhere. Um, you know, the second part is is that. Look, we've made a lot of progress in the last four years, but there's still a lot of work to be done, particularly in the Ninth Ward um, and in in the Lakeview area here in in, uh, in our city. You know, if you're a tourist and you come here and you're going to the French Quarter or you're going to, to be downtown or uh, or in the Warehouse District or uptown, you, you're going to see. Um, you know, uh, areas that are pretty much restored to what they were before the storm, and in some cases even better. But there are there are a couple of regions, areas in in the, in and around New Orleans that need uh, need a lot of work yet. And so, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, our Super Bowl win and and the attention that's been brought on our area will uh, help spur additional work in those areas. Well, I think I've said this for uh, the last few years on our show. Tom Benson deserves a lot of credit, and so do you and the organization for what you've done to help rebuild that community. I've seen what the Hornets have done as well. But, you know, I've read all the stories about Drew Brees and Reggie Bush and some of your players who have really rolled up their sleeves and taken it personally to help rebuild that community. And, you know, there's not a lot of teams that would do that. And I think uh, the fact that you built a team with – Guys that have such character is really a tribute to you and to Tom Benson. Well, you know, thank you for that, uh, Brian. I, I think this. I think our players do deserve a lot of credit. Um, they, you know, a lot of these guys weren't here during uh, Katrina, and they came afterwards. And yet, 
you know, each guy that's come here has taken it upon himself to to recognize that that uh, hey, he can mean more to our community than than uh, than he would as a player in another city. And so they've they've taken that to heart. They they go above and beyond um, the call of duty in terms of uh, you know committing their time and their resources to you know really worthy causes here here in New Orleans. And and look, I think I think every team has guys has a lot have a lot of guys that do that. Um, but you know, in our city, given what what happened with Katrina, it's uh, it's even more meaningful. I'm joined by Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and the general manager of the New Orleans Saints. You're listening to Sports Business Radio, Mickey. Uh, let's talk about how you built this football organization, and let's start back in 2006 with the hiring of Sean Payton. I was reading a story as I was preparing for this interview, and uh, I see that you came across a video of Sean Payton. When he was a coach with the Cowboys, it was about a half an hour video. What did you see in that video that made you say, wow, this is a guy who's intriguing as a possibility for the next head coach of the Saints? Well, Brian, you know, one of the things that the league does is that they uh, they do interviews with, with uh, a lot of assistant coaches around the league, assistant coaches that aspire to be head coaches. And it's it's basically a 30-minute videotaped interview. Um, you know, the questions are pretty generic. You know, they ask, uh, you know, each guy, you know, basically the same questions and, and then, uh, you know, you get to view their answers and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that it was anything that he said specifically. It was more just about his presentation. Um, you know, I watched, I watched a bunch of those interviews, probably 30 of them when it was all said and done, 30 to 40 of them. And, you know, he jumped out at me as a guy that, that, Hey, look, his presentation was excellent. And, Hey, this is a guy that I would listen to if I were a player and, and was hearing him uh, hearing him speak. Um, you know, he had a few things in there that I liked in terms of the answer, the actual answers. But uh, more than anything, it was just the presentation. So that got him on um, on our radar screen. Uh, and then, you know, you do due diligence. You call different people that he's worked with, and, and at every on every occasion, you know, I got the A plus recommendation. And so. Uh, he got to the point where, hey, look, I, I want to meet this guy, and he was uh, coaching in Dallas, and we were in San Antonio at the time, and so I asked him to uh, fly down from Dallas and meet me at the airport uh, in in San Antonio, and we spent about two two and a half hours together, you know, one evening just real informally, and and uh, you know, I, I knew at that time that look, this guy would be an excellent candidate, and and would be just what we needed in New Orleans in terms of his energy. And his vision for how he he wanted to uh, um, you know help build the team, it was very much in line with some of the philosophies that that uh, you know I thought were needed in our in our building and in our city. And and uh, you know we went from there. Um, he came later to New Orleans and had uh, you know a two day pretty extensive and intense interview. And and uh, luckily it was a great fit for both of us. Mickey, every coach seems to have signature moments over the course of their career. I would bet when it's all said and done for Sean Payton, the decision to make an onside kick at the start of the second half of the Super Bowl is going to be one of the signature moments of his career. Did you know he was going to make that call? And if you didn't, what were you thinking when you saw that play uh, to begin the second half of the Super Bowl? Well, you know, it's something, an onside kick is something we talked about and he talked about during the course of the week. And we felt like... uh, we had we had a good plan for that type of onside kick, and we felt like our chances of recovery were were really good. And so I don't know that it, we thought it was as risky as 
uh, you know, it's been portrayed to be. Obviously, there's a risk there, but but we felt pretty good about our chances to recover a surprise onside kick in that circumstance. And and uh, I didn't know when he was going to use it. I knew that he planned on using it. Um, you know, the code name for that was ambush. And and uh, you know, I knew he was going to use ambush at some point in the uh, in the game. And then during halftime, you know, I told our guys in the booth, hey, look, I, I would be willing to uh, bet we're going to come out with an onside kick. And uh, sure enough, we did, and and uh, we were lucky enough to recover it and score a touchdown off that possession, and, and you know really was a key uh, key point in the game. And, and you know, Sean has always been the kind of coach that is trying to, you know, he's trying to do things to win the game, and, and as opposed to you know not lose a game. And so it didn't surprise me. He's, he's always been aggressive. You know, we go for it a lot on fourth down, and and we do some other things that that. Uh, you know, I think are aggressive uh, uh, moves during the course of a game, so that didn't surprise me at all. So after hiring Sean Payton, you were able to land uh, Drew Brees as the quarterback. You know, and at the time, Brees was coming off a torn labrum. Some people thought he might not be able to regain the form that he had in San Diego. Walk us through how that all came together. I remember the Dolphins were also aggressively pursuing him as well, but how did he wind up in New Orleans? Well, you know, first of all, that... that uh... You know the injury that he had was was I don't know that I would call it unprecedented, but uh, for a quarterback to have that type of injury, um, you know, it can be really devastating. And, and there definitely was question as to whether or not he could come back from it. But you know, after after talking to a number of uh, doctors that are familiar with that surgery and familiar with that injury, and including the doctor uh, James Andrews who did the surgery himself, we we just felt like he could come back from it. That the uh, um, uh, the rehab time, you know, it might be one year. He might have been ready that first season, but if he wasn't, that it'd be real good chance that he was going to be ready in year two. And so, you know, if you draft a quarterback, you can, it's going to take two or three years for that guy to get uh, 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 to the point where he can play at his optimum level. And yet, here's a guy, Drew Brees, who had already proven in San Diego that he was going to be, uh, or that he was a, uh, an excellent quarterback. So we didn't feel like the risk was as great as as uh, uh, even even a draft pick, and so you know, fortunately for us, it was just us and the Dolphins, and and you know they made a decision to go another route, which was you know good for us. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure Drew wouldn't have come to New Orleans anyway because he had a great visit here. He had a connection with uh, Sean Payton, and and uh, you know I think in a lot of ways Drew has said that this was really a higher calling for him. More of my conversation with Mickey Loomis. You're listening to Sport Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or what or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. 
Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Now we continue my conversation with Mickey Loomis. Talk about Drew Brees' leadership. I mean, leadership isn't something you can really teach. You either have it or you don't, and he definitely has it and seems to be the leader of that team. Well, he he is. He's a leader of our team in terms of performance, certainly, and, and, uh, you know, off the field as well. And, you know, he's a very competitive individual, and and he's a perfectionist. And so, uh, you know, when you're the guy that's preparing the hardest, it's uh, it's tough for teammates not to follow. You know, it's tough for anybody, um, you know, on this team to get here before Drew, and it's tough for for anybody to leave after he, he leaves. So, um, he's an excellent leader just in, in the way he carries himself and the way he presents himself. And, and, and you know, the good thing for us is that he's both uh, a leader in terms of being vocal as well as a leader in terms of just his, uh, um, you know, the, the things that he does. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the New Orleans Saints. We've got a few minutes left. Mickey, uh, anytime you win a Super Bowl, it's hard to defend. You've got that target on your back. This year is going to be interesting, it would it would seem, for someone in your position, because it looks like we may have an uncapped season coming up. And I've tried to understand this. I'm hoping you can explain it a little bit better to myself and to our audience. I know that there are going to be some players who may have been unrestricted free agents in a normal year, but they're not going to be if there's an uncapped season. Explain that to us, and how does that affect your job and what you have to do when you're looking at signing players? Well, you know, what it means is that, that players who are in uh, year four and year five of their career um, are going to be restricted free agents instead of unrestricted free agents if we don't have a new uh, uh, you know, agreement by the beginning of uh, the league year, which is, I think, March 5th. Um, and so, you know, we've got some players in that category that otherwise would be unrestricted, um, and so they're not going to be as free to change teams as they would be otherwise. Although, you know, they can receive offers and, and uh, uh, sign offers with other teams. You know, we'll have, in most cases, we'll have a right of first refusal. Um, so it remains to be seen how that ultimately affects us, because I think we would have we would have an excellent. Uh, 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 opportunity to sign these guys even if they were unrestricted you know we've got a good team and we've got uh, players that want to be here and 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 obviously from our standpoint we've got a lot of guys that we want to be here so um, ultimately I don't know what the difference would be um, in terms of the makeup of our team but you know we've got a tough challenge ahead of us because you know it's hard to defend uh, a Super Bowl championship, you know, because of just what you said, you've got the target on you. Everybody wants to beat you. That helps to make their season. And, uh, you know, we'll see how we handle it. I wanted to ask you a few questions about your job. Uh, you attended the University of Oregon. You graduated as an accounting major. It seems like more and more the trend in sports is to hire GMs who have a financial background as opposed to former players. A friend of mine is Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets. He comes from a business background. Maybe you can talk about the importance in today's world, in your role, of having that understanding of the salary cap and finances and, and things of that nature. Yeah, you know, for, you know, first of all, I did have an undergraduate degree in accounting, but you know, I went back to school and have a master's degree in in uh, physical education and, and sports management. So, you know, I've got uh, a background that's a little diverse. You know, I spent, uh, um, you know, I spent uh, this is my 27th season in the NFL, I think it is, and, and so I've been in the league for a long time. You know, I spent the first, uh, you know, 15 years in Seattle. 
and uh, worked under a great general manager in, in Mike McCormick and, and then Tom Flores, who I got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, um, you know, great education from both of those guys who had been coaches, uh, players first, then coaches, and then general managers in the league. And, and so, you know, I consider myself to have a football background <laughs> as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a business background, because at the end of the day, you know, if you're a general manager, you're managing people and you're managing, um, you know, the building much more so than anything, you know, real specific in terms of evaluations or players, contracts, or, you know, there's just so many different facets to it. And so, um, you know, I think like anything else is that, you know, when, you, when you're at the top of an organization, you're managing good people, you're, you're looking to hire good people and you're looking to manage um, people and give them the opportunity to be successful in, in each of their specific fields. And so I don't know how, that it's that important what your background is. I think it's a lot more important what your experience and, and you know, the education you get along the way. And so, you know, I, I don't know about the other sports, but I know in football, you know, we've got general managers that have been, you know, ex-scouts, ex-coaches, um, you know, some have playing background and some have business background and marketing background. So we've got all kinds of, of guys and, 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 and lots of uh, different examples of guys that have been successful. But I think the common thread is that they are, they're very good at managing people. I read a great story about you in the Eugene Register Guard before the Super Bowl. And it talked about how you, lo- you knocked on a lot of doors before you got your first chance at Pro Sports with the Seattle Seahawks in the early 80s. We have a lot of students and people wanting to work in the sports world listening to this show. What advice would you give to people about, you know, knocking on those doors and making yourself stand out so you can get a job in the sports world? Well, boy, that's a good question. And and uh, I don't know that I have a great answer for it because, you know, I think, I think now um, different than, than it was when I started is that I, I think there are more people that are looking to get into sports uh, now than there was, you know, 25 years ago, right. 26 years ago. Uh, because then, you know, the the opportunity to to make a good living wasn't nearly as great. I mean, you you're working for for uh, a lot less money than you could you could earn in in a lot of other sectors uh in private industry. So, um I think what I would say is this is that just keep knocking on doors because eventually you'll get an opportunity and and then you've got to be uh diligent enough and work hard enough to take advantage of it. Something I've noticed this offseason, Mike Shanahan in Washington, Pete Carroll in Seattle. They're executive VPs, they're in charge of the whole show, but they're also the head coaches. How hard is it to do both jobs? Well, first of all, I, I don't I don't know that I agree with you because you know in, in Washington, Mike Shanahan has Bruce Allen as his general manager, and 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 Bruce has a, a world of experience right. and is right. an excellent general manager. He's been successful. He's uh, uh, been to the Super Bowl a number of times, and and uh, you know he knows what he's doing in this league. And so, you know, Mike's got a guy he can rely on pretty heavily. And in Pete, in Pete Carroll's case, you know, he's got uh, uh, personnel people, and he's got uh, you know a president and Todd Lewicki and and uh, personnel people in their building. So they're not really running the show in the sense that they're, that, you know, they're dictators. They've got good people that they can rely on uh, and, and use their expertise. Um, you know, I think there's at the end of the day, there's there's several different structures that can be successful in the NFL, and and uh, you know that's certainly one of them. When you have a head coach at the um, 
uh, you know, as the final decision maker. And there are other examples and great examples when you have a general manager as the, as the uh, um, final decision maker. And then there's the examples of, of teams that use, you know, uh, um, three different guys that, that are all, uh, you know, working in concert together. And I think at the end of the day, you have to work in concert with each each facet of uh, of an organization. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. Last question for you. I know you have a lot of friends and family in Oregon who are very proud of you. How often are you able to get back to the uh, Oregon area and visit family and friends? Well, you know, I, I try to come back once a year, but it's been a couple of years since I've been back there. I do have a lot of friends and 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 family in Oregon, and and you know one of the great things about winning a Super Bowl is you get to hear from all of them, <laughs> uh, you know, because they're they're just so happy for you. And and so I've heard from a lot of people that I haven't heard from from a long time, but I enjoy that. I like that a lot, and I know that I'll get back there uh, either this spring or summer, and uh, you know hopefully I'll get to spend a week or two, um, and, and and you know revisit some friendships and and revisit some areas that I want to see again. You know, I miss Oregon in a lot of ways. Yeah, I bet your friends and family want you to bring the Super Bowl trophy with you too, right? <laughs> I might I might have to do that. That'd be great. Well, Mickey, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I'm very, very happy for you that you guys won the Super Bowl, and uh, thanks for taking time with us this week on Sports Business Radio. I appreciate it, Brian. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. When this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, We'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Well, the U.S. men's hockey team beat Canada last Sunday for the first time in 50 years in the Olympics by a score of 5-3. to three. The Canadians were the heavy favorites in the game. It wasn't the miracle on ice against the Russians 30 years ago, but it was a huge victory that had Americans buzzing this week. 8.2 million viewers tuned in to watch the game on MSNBC. The record audience ever for MSNBC was 8.23 million viewers on election night when President Barack Obama was elected. The USA-Canada game outrated Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals for NBC last season. It was the second most watched hockey game in America since the Miracle on Ice game that was seen by 10 million viewers. Now, here's my problem with the game, you guys. So we live on the West Coast, and NBC has Russia and Czechoslovakia delayed starting at 3 o'clock on NBC. If you flip over to MSNBC, 
not in HD, you could see USA versus Canada live. And you could also see Russia versus Czechoslovakia highlights and final scores given, even though on NBC on the West Coast, the game is just underway. A lot of people were upset that this game wasn't shown on NBC, wasn't shown in HD on NBC, and some people didn't even know it was on MSNBC because they couldn't find it. And it goes back to my conversation with John Auron last week. If it's not on NBC, you don't know what the other stations in the NBC family of networks are showing. It was one of the biggest games of all time. Can I just say this, though, on a positive note? I'm not a huge hockey fan. I do watch hockey from time to time. This was one of the most exciting hockey games I have ever seen. The last five minutes, I was on the edge of my seat, and I'm not a hockey fan. That's how big this game was, and that's what a big flop it was, not to have it on NBC, live for us on the West Coast, in HD. And I completely agree with Nathan. It's not fair. I mean, most cable networks, you'll get CNBC in high def, which is great. You get USA in high def, but MSNBC is a second-tiered cable news station that most viewers in the United States get in standard def. It's not fair. Now, I will say the thing that really was bad, if you watched NBC's primetime coverage later, they go to bobsled, cut away for the last 30 seconds of the game in HD. You get to watch that and like, oh, okay, well, we're going to go back to like ice dancing now. Then we'll continue with the bobsled. But hey, we wanted to give you this thing. So if you sat down and watched it, you already knew what happened. And then you had to watch NBC's primetime coverage cut away for 30 seconds. It was just a bad overall mistake. Well, in the NHL and hockey in general wonder why no one's interested in their sport. That's why. All right, lots of thank yous on our show this week. Mickey Loomis, the executive vice president and the general manager of the New Orleans Saints. Great conversation. You can hear it on demand on sportsbusinessradio.com anytime. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon and New School Media Coaching, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page, or on iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. Follow me on Twitter, at SB Radio. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next weekend right here on Sports Business Radio. 